There's a story about a rich industrialist who was disturbed uh, as he came along the shore uh, of a lake that he saw this uh, fisherman sitting lazily beside his boat. And this was a take charge, do it all the time kind of guy. And he said, why aren't you out there fishing? Well, because I've caught enough fish for today, the fisherman said. Well, why don't you catch more fish than you need? What would I do with them? Well, you could earn more money, came the impatient reply. With more money, you could buy a better boat so you could go deeper and catch more fish. You could purchase more nylon nets, catch even more fish and make money. Soon you'd have a fleet of boats and be rich like me. Well, then what would I do? Well, then you could sit down and enjoy life. What do you think I'm doing right now? (laughs) Paul said these words in our scripture. These are actually from the New International Version. Let's look at the next slide. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. What an amazing piece of wisdom for us to to wrestle with and to try to grasp. I read a book a few years ago called The New New Thing. Uh, That's the cover of the book, and the guy uh, was mostly about, it was a bestseller about high-tech startup companies out in Silicon Valley. It focused on a guy, mostly on a guy named Jim Clark, seated there. Uh, He made billions starting businesses such as Netscape and Silicon Graphics. He was incredibly wealthy, but In spite of that, he was never a contented man. The author of the book, Michael Lewis, taunts Jim Clark in this work. He says these things. I remember when you said if you had $10 million, you'd be happy. Then you got 10. I remember when you said if you ever hit 100 million, then you'd be happy. Then you got your 100 million. And I remember the day you said that if you ever became an after-tax billionaire, that would be enough. You'd be happy. Well, Clark became a billionaire after taxes and still wasn't content. Here's how the author describes Jim Clark at the end of his book. No matter how well Jim Clark did for himself, it was always 2 o'clock in the morning in his heart, and he was lying awake. Is that an interesting picture? 2 o'clock in the morning, and he can't sleep. Isn't that a accurate picture of discontent a billion dollars in the bank and it's not enough that's what discontent can do to you and it's not just the rich who are afflicted with this statistics on people who spend money buying lottery tickets and gambling in casino uh, or load up on credit card debt indicate that the lower and middle class uh, folk are just as likely to catch the disease of discontent as those who are rich and it's a deadly disease when this disease strike, strikes you, a good three- or four-year-old automobile because it becomes an embarrassment that has to be replaced. When it strikes you, a nice home becomes substandard. When it strikes you, you go to your closet and say, I've got nothing to wear, even though the closet is full. This is a monster, this idea of more bringing satisfaction. It's a belief that happiness is just one purchase away, one more upgrade. It's the belief that contentment is there if you can just grab onto it through something. I love this story from John Ortberg. Uh, Take a look at this picture. John Ortberg's one of my favorite mentors. I quote him a lot. As a parent, he says, I've many times taken my child to the golden arches. 
And the same meal was always requested. It comes in a bag or a box like this. It's a combination of food and a little prize. The food was never the big deal. Sometimes not much of it was eaten. They were after the prize, usually a cheap little thing. But in a picture of marketing genius, the people at McDonald's gave this meal the name Happy Meal. It's a happy meal. So when you buy it, you're not just buying a hamburger, fries, and a drink. You might be getting a plastic Sonic the Hedgehog. (laughs) But even above that, you're not buying that. You're buying happiness. And Ortberg continues, And children have become convinced that their hearts will be restless until they find their rest in a happy meal. You can try to buy them off. I've tried it. Others have too. Honey, just get whatever food you want. I'll give you a quarter and you can go buy a trinket on your own that's more valuable than what you'll get here. But that argument doesn't work. And the chant arises in the restaurant from the children. We want a happy meal. We want a happy meal. And then people in the restaurant turn their heads to see what kind of a cheapskate. (laughs) Tight-fisted parents would deny their child the meal of great value and joy. So we've bought a lot of Happy Meals in our family, and they're happy, aren't they, for, for a few minutes. <laughs> and he continues with this wisdom, I think, that's incredible. The problem with a Happy Meal is the happy wears off. It doesn't last. A few years later, the child does not come back to the parent and say, remember that Happy Meal I got? What great joy I found there. I knew if I could get that, I'd be contented. And I am, Dad, thanks to your wisdom and generosity. And then he continues with these words. You'd think that kids, being as bright as they are, would catch on to this whole thing. That one day they'd say, I keep getting these happy meals, but they don't really bring me lasting happiness. So I'm not going to be a sucker anymore. I'm not going to set myself up for disappointment and frustration and discontentment one more time. But it doesn't happen. As we go through life, we keep buying Happy Meals. And why is it that the only one who really gets lasting happiness from the Happy Meal is the fellow in the clown suit with the big silly grin? (laughs) Billions, billions of tiny little Happy Meals. And of course, we're not here to run down McDonald's, but they give us a good picture. We are offered happy meals in life, and we chase after them. They take different forms as we get older. But happiness does not come from happy meals or any happy purchase that we might set our eyes and our hearts on. Contentment comes from somewhere else. The Apostle Paul said in this uh, scripture that he's learned about being content. There are some things that he did not mean by this, and they're important to point out. He did not mean that we're just supposed to be passive in this world and stoic and accept things as the way they are. Uh, We're not to be complacent. Martin Luther King Jr. was not called to be content about segregation and racial discrimination. The call to contentment is not a call to focus on our own personal comfort, regardless of injustice or evil in the world. The call to contentment is not a call to apathy. A resignation. There are times when, even in Scripture, people who were very content with life and knew who they are also had a, a stirring inside that called them to action, uh, to act in the face of sadness, grief, frustration, or anger. The de- definition of content- contentment really is 
not having this burning inside of us to want more. It's an experience of inner freedom, contentment is. Freedom from dissatisfaction, freedom from out-of-balance appetites, freedom from unfulfilled desires. It, it's a freedom from that, that itch that we have inside that says, oh, I've got to have more. If I just have this, then I'll be happy. I won't be satisfied until I get what I do not have. For Paul, it looks like confidence that he can face any situation in life. He said he's learned the secret of being content, whether he has a lot or a little. And there are temptations to be discontented, aren't there? I've learned that I can face any of them, Paul says, because of my relationship with Christ, because of of knowing who I am and knowing what God wants and dreams for my life. I don't have to put my life on hold until I get that next thing because Christ is here with me now. Again, Ortberg says a great picture of this is, I don't know if you can kind of guess what that was a part of, but you remember the old Nesty commercials? Somebody was really hot and thirsty and they were by the edge of a pool and he or she would get a drink of iced tea, Nest tea, and experience such great, intense satisfaction at that moment that he or she would go, ah, and then fall back in the pool. Boy, it made you so thirsty for iced tea. Well, that's a great sound, isn't it? That's the sound of contentment. Ah. Just so we can kind of stay with it and really get focused on this today, as a group, I want us to make that sound together. Okay? You know, even though we're not having iced tea right now, doesn't it feel good to make that sound? I want to invite you to make that sound a lot during the next seven days. It feels good. It's a sound of contentment. So when you sit down to eat at noon today, if you're at the Twins game, whenever it is, whenever you sit down to eat and you look at your food, instead of complaining, we're all going to say, Tomorrow morning when you wake up and the first thing you see is your spouse, instead of whining, you're going to go, ah. Find lots of places to say that sound of contentment this week. Well, if contentment is so critical, where does it come from? How do people become contented? The usual thinking about contentment is, I'll be happy if I get something or if something in my life changes, if some circumstance you know, gets adjusted, then I'll be happy. I'll be contented. If only the right circumstances fall into place, if only I have enough financial resources, the right home or this possession or the job that I want, then I'd be content. But I want to suggest that for Paul and for us, contentment doesn't lie in that. It comes somewhere else. And we can get at this by considering two questions. If you've been in a small group, you might have answered one of these two questions at some point. First, what is the most memorable experience that you've had in the last 12 months? And then the second one is, what is it that will keep you motivated and energized for the next 12 months of your life? So in the last year, what is it that's had been, been really terrific for you? And what will the next 12 months, what will it take for that for something terrific to happen to you. So let's look at both of these questions. The first one is, what's the most memorable experience of your last 12 months? When you ask people this, almost always, almost always it's about relationship with other people. 
I mean, we, 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 we get purchases, we do things, but really, when it comes down to it, it's when have I had a great experience with someone? When I've made a new friend? When I've had a time of intimacy or developed some friendships? People ask me, you know, what's been the last, you know, greatest thing about your last 12 months? And I would say probably, you know, not thinking about it very much, but I would say, you know, I had to say goodbye to some really great friendships from the last church that we served over at Brunswick. But I'd also say one of the great experiences is I love coming to new churches and meeting new people. And it's been fun to, to, to get new relationships going and for you to share who you are with me and, and, uh, and to talk through some things. It, it, it's just fun for me. Uh, that's what life is about, I think, in contentment. God's dream for us really is community. To get together in deep friendships to be there for each other, to care for each other. That's what our hearts long for. The scriptures say we long for eternity in our hearts. And that's part of it, this idea of community that God has for us. Paul knows this. It's a secret to his contentment. His letters, we've been going through Philippians, but if you look through the rest of his letters, they're flavored with love for individuals and community where he has served and started churches. He's in prison right now, but he's got a sense of contentment because of the relationships he has. So contentment is not about your current net worth, not about the size of your home or apartment or the quantity or quantity of your clothes, quality of them. These things have little to do with your experience in deep, lasting relationships. You can create relational moments, whether you're barbecuing at a park or on the deck of an apartment, in a starter home, a custom home, or a yacht. You can touch somebody's heart with a $4 meal at a fast food restaurant as easily as you can as an expensive restaurant. Community is not dependent on those things. So learning to be content involves understanding that right now, in this moment of my life, I don't need more money. I don't need more achievement. I don't need more possessions or toys to engage in one of the most satisfying things that bring contentment, and that's human relationships. I have enough right now to love people. I have enough to touch somebody else's heart. And if I focus on that, I will move into deeper contentment. So how's your focus on that, Ben? A guy I know um, got a Christmas card a few years ago and uh, said Merry Christmas on it. And uh, he, he looked at the card and it was from a couple in his church. It had a picture of them with a nice mansion in the background. They were holding hands, smiles on their faces. And he looked at it. His first reaction was, well, of course they're smiling and happy. Look at that house. Then he flipped the card over and he read about it. It wasn't their house. It was part of a cancer hospital. It was a, a home that had been donated to a treatment center so that people could stay while they came for treatments. So they're standing in front of this house that had been, they had been blessed to stay with while he underwent treatment. And on the card, uh, this guy wrote these words. It's been a great year. I still love God. I still have my wife. I have kids who love me. I have my church and they're all praying for me. And I'm content. Merry Christmas, everybody. So at least a part of the secret to contentment comes from uh, not worrying and fretting about possessions and things, but from investing yourself in the lives of others. The second question was, what will it take me to, to keep me motivated and energized for the next 12 months? Uh, when this question is asked, the answer tends to be the same whether you're 
uh, blue collar or in management, rich or poor, to be motivated and energized for the future. People want to know that their lives have a sense of purpose, that they're here for a reason, that they're making a difference. We want to know that our lives count, that we're making, uh, that we're inv- giving the world and others some value. Our efforts have meaning. Our talents, gifts, and abilities are not wasted. Anticipation over the future has more to do with meaning than it does money. I know people that have turned down job offers that would have significantly boosted their income because they felt like they were called, they, they had a sense that they needed to be somewhere else to, to invest in others. And a lot of people get that. Sometimes people don't. Uh, the story of the baseball player Fred McGriff, I don't know if you remember him, about a decade ago, I remember this story. He shocked some people when he vetoed a trade. He was playing for the Florida Marlins when they were real crummy. And he was, he was traded, at least a trade was being initiated for him to go to the Chicago Cubs. They were in first place. And he had in this uh, contract clause that said he could veto trades. And he vetoed the trade. He chose to stay with last place Marlins instead of going to... Uh, to um, Actually, it was the Rays, now that I look at his uniform. I knew it was a Florida team. Um, he, he vetoed the trade to the Cubs, even though it would have meant going to playoffs. Sports writers couldn't get that. They asked him about it. And he said, well, my family's just settled, and my son, my son right now needs some stability in his life, so I don't want to move. Some of the writers got it. Others didn't. How could someone make that kind of a value-based decision? For Paul, the secret of being content is doing what God wants him to do right now in this moment. And that was to share the story and the grace of Christ with as many people as possible. He lets us in on the secret of contentment. I don't need a lot of stuff if I'm excited about what God has going in my life. If I love what God has me to do in the marketplace, in education, in church, wherever I work, if if I'm doing what I know I'm supposed to be doing, then I'm content. I will be content and life is not about me. Remember where Paul is when he writes this? He's in prison. He's not speaking about contentment lightly. He's not one of those guys who's just glided through life. Paul has been in every situation. He knows what he's talking about. He's been hungry. He's been alone. He's been beaten for his faith. These words are coming from prison while he's in change. He's facing the possibility, the very real possibility, and it did turn out that way that he would be put to death for his faith. So how does he know about contentment? It's because he knows that the aim of his life is something bigger than happiness. It's because the aim of his life is not his own comfort and convenience. The aim of his life is to know God, to know God's kind of life, to let God live through him, to make him more and more uh, a person after Christ. He's discovered that's the one thing, this is the one thing that can satisfy his soul. So whether he's got a lot, whether he's got a little, doesn't matter. Whether his circumstances are easy or hard, it's irrelevant. He's found something better. He doesn't worry about what he has or doesn't have. What's trivial in life really feels trivial to him. He's come to understand that what his, his heart and what all human hearts crave after is something more eternal. What you have cannot be satisfied by human circumstances. But we settle for less so often. 
kind of close here with this quote from C.S. Lewis. It's a little long, but stay with it. It's, it's worth it. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Scriptures, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures. We're fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is being offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Those are words for a world that chases after happy meals. Not a world that desires too much, but a a world that settles for something way less. So the word today is don't be too easily pleased. May this coming year of school and work and ministry here at, at Crosswinds, may it be a year where you experience more and more contentment. May you discover how much Jesus really loves you. May you be like the nesty guy or gal at the edge of the pool and lean back into the arms of God so you can say, ah, may you be like the guy who had caught enough fish for the day. I invite you to reflect on this over the coming days and months. Uh, We've got some classes, some opportunities for growth, for getting connected with others out in the fellowship hall. I invite you to head over there and see where is it that I might find life by connecting with others and by learning and growing. A question to to hold on to uh, as we leave this morning is what are the happy meals that you've been chasing? Isn't it time to go after something else? We're going to close in prayer now. And, you know, we usually stop our prayers at the end by saying amen. We're going to do that, but we're going to add something at the end of our prayer today. Ah, okay. Let's bow for prayer. God, we thank you. We thank you for all the good gifts that you give us. Even in this world where life is often hard, God, help us to stake our lives on what really matters and give us this one more gift the secret of being content in you and in relationship with others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And everybody said, Ah.